welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. Um, I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have joined uh, just now, my guest this week is Nigel Gould-Davies. He's the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And Nigel has a great deal of experience as a diplomat in the region. He was British ambassador to Belarus from 2007 to 2009, and has also been the head of the economic section at the British Embassy in Moscow. Uh, So thanks again uh, for joining me today, Nigel. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, I'm glad you could be here. Uh, And I think the timing is really fortunate because... As I mentioned, you had an opinion article uh, published in the New York Times last week on May 12th, uh, I believe. And I want to kind of follow up on some of the points you made and how they fit into the situation on the ground, as they say. Um, With uh, Russia's offensives in eastern Ukraine um, facing a major challenge, uh, by most accounts, certainly, from Ukrainian forces uh, in the Donbass, around Kharkiv for the north, and elsewhere, um, elsewhere in Ukraine. Uh, the title of your guest essay uh, was, We Must Make Sure Russia Finishes This War in a Worse Position Than Before. You know, I think that's something that people are starting to talk about more and more lately. And I'm just going to uh, read an excerpt from the article, Nigel. You wrote, uh, quote, The West needs a strategy that guarantees Russia will end up regretting its actions. A peace uh, that for the second time since 2014 rewards a Russian invasion uh, with Ukrainian territory would have severe consequences for Ukraine's future, Western security and credibility, and the norms of sovereignty and non-intervention that underpin the international order. Uh, you went on to to wait uh, for a grueling stalemate to define the contours of a peace settlement is to favor Russia. To prevent this from happening, the West needs to guarantee that Russia is worse off than it was before the invasion. At a minimum, Western policy should ensure that Russia gains no new Ukrainian territory and continues to face severe sanctions until it fundamentally changes its policy toward Ukraine, unquote. So thanks for bearing with me on that. Um, And Nigel, my my basic question here uh, is, how can this be done? Um, What would the West need to do to try to guarantee that Russia is actually worse off than it was before the invasion? And do you think it's feasible? Can it be done? Mm. Yeah, thanks. And thanks to everyone who pointed out questions as well, if we if we have time for those. So just a, a, a bit of context to this, just to, to convey a sense of how, how I was thinking about this. Uh, the West is not a combatant in this war, but it is a participant. Uh, and it's the most powerful of the participants, ultimately. The resources it has to bring to bear on this conflict uh, outstrip uh, Russia's. Uh, and it seems to me the on- it's the only participant that hasn't clearly defined objectives. It's chosen means, but not yet ends uh, to which it wishes to direct those means. The means are well known, of course, principally uh, the provision of military aid, uh, intelligence as well, 
and also severe and growing economic sanctions, uh, which I believe will uh, have very, very significant and cumulative effects on the Russian economy. This reminds us, incidentally, this is a war being fought, in effect, on two fronts. One is uh, on the ground in Ukraine, by military means, and the other is on the home fronts of the respective participants, and that's, uh, uh, that's by economic uh, means. So uh, I do believe it's uh, absolutely essential for a range of reasons for Russia to be left worse off than this. The alternative to that would be that Russia is better off as a consequence of what we now have to call the second invasion of Ukraine following the first one in 2014. And that would that would uh, be a, a, a victory for Russia, even if the outcome fell short of its primary objectives of forcing a change of regime and the imposition of a, a pro-Russian uh, a puppet government in Kiev. It would be a vindication of the horrific methods as well that Russia has used to prosecute the war and persecute uh, civilians. So uh, I do believe for all those reasons, it's, it's essential that Russia be worse off. What does worse off mean exactly? Uh, well, that's something uh, that we can discuss. And there's a range of possibilities there. At a minimum, I would say it means that Russia can enjoy no net territorial gain uh, beyond what it uh, possessed control over on February 24th, uh, when the invasion began. It could mean that Russia loses control of some uh, or possibly even all of the territories that it acquired since 2014. And maybe we can talk about some of those scenarios um, uh, a little later. Uh, if it's a matter of, in territorial terms, uh, simply becoming no better off, but not becoming worse off, then I think it's essential that sanctions continue and continue to exert those cumulative and erosive uh, and severe effects on Russia's home front. That would be that would help make Russia worse off and also uh, make it clear the price that it would have to pay until it uh, fundamentally changes its attitude towards uh, Ukraine and Western security, I have to say, uh, more generally. So can it be done? Uh, well, it's partly a matter of the, the resolve and the scale of support that the West is prepared to provide to Ukraine and partly a matter of Ukraine's own capacity to continue to fight, and we have to say now increasingly win because its uh, its its uh, its gains even in the past few days seem to me uh, quite uh, remarkable. Uh, Ukraine has done the hard bit. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's saved its capital. It has forced Russia to uh, very significantly downgrade at least its shorter term objectives. I do not believe that Putin will ever give up the aspiration and principle for those maximalist goals that he uh, had set himself at the beginning of the war. Uh, Ukraine, at great cost to itself, has done the hard things. Uh, the West now can and should do the easier ones. And if Ukraine continues to win on the field, or at least uh, continues not to lose, then if the West does escalate the forms of support it's been providing already, then the correlation of forces will gradually uh, and inexorably shift in favor of Ukraine. So I believe, yes, it absolutely can be done. But it's essential the West set itself unambiguously the goal of doing that, of making Russia worse off 
after and as a consequence of this war. Now, we've seen a number of statements from uh, Western leaders that suggest uh, a more explicit and firmer sort of direction of travel in the last few weeks. There was Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin's remarks about making Russia weaker. Uh, British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss saying in her Mansion House speech that uh, Russia, we should go further and farther until Russia is pushed out of Ukraine. We saw Ursula von der Leyen say that uh, we want Ukraine to win. But I don't think we have a Western consensus yet that's explicit on this matter. And that's what we need now. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, I, uh, interesting points you make. W one thing I'd like to uh, just mention is, uh, yeah, it seems like there's been there's been movement definitely in that direction, as you say, you know, and there's still but I guess there's still a lot of debate in the West over um, and you're and I guess you're saying, you know, this should be made kind of a policy and, and, and a concerted one, a concerted effort by the West. And there's also, um, you know, certainly uh, still debate over, you know, whether it's a good idea to kind of punish Russia, whether, you know, some people would, would oppose the idea of of um, of Russia ending up with less uh, than it than it has now or that it's taken or that it had before uh, February 24th when it invaded. Another another um, thing I just for me, it was very interesting. You mentioned and I think this has sort of been a little bit forgotten. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, Russia needs to change its attitude. I'm not using your exact words, but I guess uh, change its attitudes toward Ukraine um, and also towards Western security, I guess. And that's, you know, that's sort of a fundamental thing. I mean, for me, uh, it seems like a long time ago, but in December, November, December, you know, Russia was making its, uh, you know, incredible demands uh, for, uh, you know, no NATO expansion ever into Ukraine or other, you know, no, no, no countries in the former Soviet Union could join NATO um, and uh, rolling back, um, you know, NATO weapons um, in Eastern Europe, essentially kind of an effort to return to kind of unlose the unlose the Cold War in a way, really, to return to, to mm -hmm. you know, sometime in 1991. So I just I just thought, you know, it's interesting because people. I think people have sort of forgotten to, in some ways about, uh, you know, those demands that were made uh, and that that seemed to really presage, you know, as the war drew, the invasion drew closer, it was kind of thinking, how, how can Russia not invade when it's making these demands and they're being rejected? So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to point that out. Um, I, I guess the other... Uh, one of the other questions I, I'd have uh, is I'd just like to go back uh, to the part of the uh, part of that excerpt from your essay. You wrote that at a minimum, Western policy should ensure that Russia gains no new Ukrainian territory. And you spoke about this uh, in, in what you just said uh, a bit and, and what that might mean. But I guess the question uh, for me is what what if Russia loses territory, not not. Uh, not territory, you know, in Russia, but territory that it now controls uh, in Ukraine. Uh, personally, I kind of struggle to imagine Putin accepting an outcome that leaves him with no way to claim some measure of success. 
In other words, uh, an outcome in which Russia not only does not gain any new territory, but actually loses control over the parts of the Donbass uh, that it held before the invasion on February 24th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was about a third of the Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, not, mm-hmm. uh, not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I guess I struggle to believe, it. it's a big question for me, like if faced with that situation, um, would Putin refrain from taking some drastic and destructive step? I mean, a step even more drastic and destructive than those he's already taken since February. Um, Nigel, you wrote that, quote, the argument that Russia will use nuclear weapons um, unless it is allowed to gain from the war does not deter Ukraine from fighting, and it should not deter the West from giving Ukraine the means to do so, unquote. And you also wrote that, quote, weakness does not make an irrational threat more credible. So I'd like to follow up on that and ask essentially this, and I'm going to leave Crimea out of it for now at least. Um, Let's say Russia and the Russia-backed separatists or forces uh, in the Donbass are essentially defeated and pushed out of the Donbass uh, and out of the areas further southwest uh, that they now control at least partially. What happens next? Yeah, now that's a, a that's a very good question. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the, the single most important question, at least territorially, is whether Russia beca- uh, becomes better off or ends up worse off. But there is a, a secondary, but also very important question, which in effect you've you've just posed, which is how much worse off. And of course, a range of possibilities. But to keep it simple, it could be either a matter of going back to the status quo ante, not of 24th of February this year, but of March 2014, so soon after the first invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And that would leave Ukraine now if it were able to sort of return to the status quo ante then in March 2014. That would leave it with uh, control over the whole of the Donbass, but not Crimea. And then the, you know, the last possibility would be to return to the status quo ante of February 2014, before the, uh, uh, the the rigged referendum in Crimea, and take the whole of uh, restore the whole of Ukrainian territory, as you said, it uh, maybe can sort of park that for the moment. So, how much further could Ukraine uh, go now if it continues to win, uh, and how far would Russia accept that? I suppose on the matter of acceptance, well. I mean, countries are, are just defeated. They don't necessarily accept the defeat. It's something that simply is a, is a fact for them. But, uh, of course, you pose the, uh, the uh, possibility that a lot of people have been worrying about since the beginning of this war of whether Russia might uh, use nuclear weapons and break that uh, uh, through that, uh, that, that, that fire break that's, uh, that's been observed ever since. 1945. And much ink has been shed on on the subject, of course, and there's a range of views. I'll just offer a a couple of thoughts on this. So, I mean, firstly, I think it's important to, um, well, firstly, if Putin genuinely is kind of deranged and and mad and and, and, uh, either for obsessions about historical legacy or his own uh, possibly imminent mortality or some combination of the two. If he really is, as it were, deranged in that way, then all bets are off. We simply can't make 
sort of calculations about what what someone who's insane can uh, can possibly do. Um, if there's rationality there, uh, then rationality is something you can understand and work with. Um, but you do that not on the basis of what they say, but on the basis of your best understanding of how they will really act. And uh, uh, from the start of this war, Putin has worked hard in various ways to uh, to raise the prospect, the specter of the use of nuclear weapons. This was more or less explicit in the in the uh, the speech that he he gave, declaring uh, what he still won't call war, but but is. Uh, and his his loose nuclear talk, of course, has disconcerted people uh, for recent in recent years. He's the only leader of a major nuclear power who's ever talked as loosely and recklessly about nuclear weapons uh, as, as as this. Uh, uh, so, uh, but you know, does it would be a profoundly unwelcome for him uh, for Russia to lose territory it controls, but recall it's not sovereign Russian territory, it's still sovereign Ukrainian territory. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that it's unwelcome uh, doesn't mean that he will resort to irrational means if he's still rational. He knows that the prospects for him could be uh, absolutely disastrous. On the question of sovereignty, incidentally, we may well be faced with a scenario that I'm not sure there's any precedent for anywhere in the world, uh, which is in the middle of a war to recognize territory uh, or claim its uh, assert a sovereign right over territory that you've not held before. So it's very possible that in the next few uh, days or weeks, rigged referenda will be held in various parts of uh, Russian-controlled Ukraine, including the parts of the Don, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, so-called People's Republics. And uh, uh, by those means, Russia will try to integrate uh, these territories into uh, the Russian Federation, claiming that it now uh, owns them, that they are sovereign parts. So that would mean if Russia did that, you know, I'm very doubtful that any other country would recognize that claim, but Russia would assert them in a way it hasn't before as sovereign territory. And that would mean it would claim in its Russia's eyes that any uh, advance of Ukrainian forces into uh, Donetsk and Luhansk would be incursions into Russian territory. That's how they would try to portray the subject and it's a, uh, portray those, uh, those actions. It's very important uh, that that kind of claim uh, be rejected, uh, of course. Uh, we've, the, as you know, the Western intelligence community has been looking very, very closely, constantly is, at what Russia is doing and might be preparing to do with uh, its nuclear forces and sees no sign yet of any practical to operational uh, uh, preparation for, uh, for their use. I think it's important, uh, and I try to argue in the article, it's important to kind of aim off uh, or respond to uh, those parts of the analytical community that have always placed uh, the highest priority and made as their greatest concern the risk of escalation. And, um, you know, there are, there are some people who have made this a consistent theme of their commentary. Uh, before the invasion, they said, well, we have to 
pressure Ukraine into making concessions so that Russia won't invade. And then when the war began, they said, well, there's no point in uh, providing military aid for Ukraine. Those would be over very quickly. Uh, Russia will win. And when Russia didn't win very quickly, then said, well, our priority must be to avoid escalation. Uh, so the concern uh, on uh, in, in the minds of, of those analysts has always been, well, the most important thing is to avoid escalation. If you do that, if you make escalation, particularly by nuclear means, by your adversary, your greatest concern, then you invite escalation. You encourage it to take place. Uh, and I think that's uh, it's very important to, 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 to provide a, a corrective to that view. The risk isn't zero. We're in genuinely uncharted territory. And I wouldn't want to offer any false assurance that the risk of a nuclear escalation is zero, but it would remain you know, a dangerous, risky, uh, an irrational step. Uh, and we shouldn't exaggerate its probability, because if we do, then we cede to Russia, uh, uh, in effect, the, uh, uh, the, the right to decide what we do. There's one final issue in all of this, which... Uh, I think has been neglected to a degree. I did not mention my article, but it's worth it's worth raising. Uh, China would be, which, which I think is already very disconcerted for a large number of reasons by this war, which has made Russia uh, a reckless, unreliable, and much weaker partner, and has mobilised Western power uh, and sanctions instruments in ways that could, in due course, be used against China. I think China could not conceivably support the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So to the extent that that relationship matters to Russia, I think that will also be a restraining force on it. Uh, that, that's a very interesting point I, that I hadn't thought of, um, uh, along with some of your other points. Um, so I'd just like to, uh, so that's another factor kind of restraining Russia from using nuclear weapons. And one thing I'd also point out is that, well, as you said, I think, uh, I guess, Western countries and, and intelligence services have not detected any any meaningful change in, um, I guess, what is it, the posture but um, of, of Russia in, in terms of nuclear weapons since, uh, since the start of the invasion and since um, Putin, I guess, uh, you know, asked uh, Shoigu, ordered Shoigu, the defense minister, to put the uh, nuclear weapons on a special kind of alert. Um, so that may not have actually meant anything. And that sort of plays into the idea that, you know, a lot of this uh, is is rhetoric. Um, and, uh, and Putin has been making comments about, you know, he's been, as you said, raising the, this kind of the threat, the idea of the possible use of nuclear weapons. For, for years now, since before the, this invasion, um, he was talking about, you know, who will go to who to go, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell if there's a nuclear uh, war uh, a few years ago. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's it's kind of a theme that that he, he seems to like to to play on. You have Lavrov doing that as well now um, mm -hmm. and, and others uh, in Russia. I just want to ask one one other question. Um, uh, and, and actually get into the idea of Crimea for a minute. Um, you know, I think, you know, recently there's been more talk, as we mentioned, about the, the idea that, that Ukraine can, can win the war. Um, uh, 
And, you know, I think there's, there's, I would venture to say that there's more of a confidence or more of a, you know, I at least hear Ukrainian voices saying, well, you know, we will, we will take back uh, Crimea. Um, do you think that that's sort of a, a, a possibility here or, or um, is that still something that's, uh, I mean, in terms of militarily and kind of politically in the West, or is it something that, um, that will be shied away from? I, I don't know. Maybe it's a sensitive question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the first uh, thing to say is that just as sort of a larger contextual point, we focused on how, sort of what would happen to territory uh, at the end of the war and what would be agreed in the course of some eventual peace agreement. Uh, who controls what territory, of course, is a very important question. It's not the only question that would be relevant uh, to the, uh, the, the the form of a of a peace agreement. There are other issues as well. And one of them is the uh, the fate of the nearly 200,000 Ukrainian citizens who have been taken in, in effect forced, abducted, if you like, uh, and are now in various parts scattered across the, the Russian Federation, some as part of, as far as Kamchatka in the Far East. There are, there are others too. A second issue, more directly for the West, is what, um, uh, what, uh, under what terms would sanctions uh, be eased? Uh, and a third issue is what... Uh, form of uh, reparations uh, might be uh, made for uh, the devastation uh, that Ukraine has suffered from this war. And is the relationship between the sanctions question and the reparations question? Uh, active discussions on both sides of the Atlantic now uh, uh, in, uh, in explorations and ways to ways to uh, to not just to freeze assets but to seize them and to uh, to to help them contribute to. Um, to uh, the revival, eventual revival of uh, Ukraine's economy. There are other issues as well. Uh, the, the question of the prosecution of war crimes, which is an international, large international legal issue, presumably would not be affected by a peace agreement. But to go back to the specifics of territory, uh, it, uh, the West, I imagine, will never recognize, never formally recognize the uh, annexation of, uh, of Crimea. Unless Ukraine says, well, that's a price it's prepared to pay for an outcome that on other terms would be advantageous to it. Uh, Just as the annexation of the Baltic states by the Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War was never formally recognized uh, by uh, the West. There may be another issue here about about the views of um, uh, local population. I just don't don't know how this would work out and it's a, it's a it's a difficult uh, speculation um so uh if it's a matter of fighting on on territory where at least a proportion of uh, the people don't want the status quo to change well that raises questions that uh, haven't been raised so far by the fighting that ukraine has done because that's been uh, among a population that that, that, that absolutely uh, supports what the Ukrainian uh, 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 military is doing and what it's fighting for. So, I think everyone rec- recognizes Crimea is the most difficult of the 
uh, of the, the issues to be, to be broached. What's quite clear at this point is that under international law, it remains part of Ukraine's sovereign territory. Okay, well, thanks very much. Uh, those are really, uh, I mean, I think you, you sort of provided both kind of sweeping, uh, you know, look at the situation um, and also a lot of great detail about, uh, and thanks for raising the, those additional issues um, uh, that that will uh, be involved uh, in the future in any kind of a of a agreement or negotiations, including the preparations and the, as you mentioned, 200,000 uh, Ukrainians or so who have been taken to Russia or given no choice but to go there. Uh, and and you know, uh, so uh, and, and are living in, in different and difficult circumstances there. Obviously, uh, kind of a huge question uh, among among other ones, um, as you mentioned. So. Uh, uh, thanks for raising that as well. Um, and I, I, we're getting short of time, but I'd like to take a few, a few questions uh, if there are any. I see uh, we have one question from Nirvana Mahmoud. Uh, can you uh, go ahead and ask, please? Oh, um, she may not be on the podcast uh, anymore, uh, so I'll just open it up. Uh, if anyone, if anyone else has uh, questions uh, for Nigel, uh, please, please go ahead. Or you can, and you can um, ask to be a speaker, and or send a DM. If, if we're waiting, Steve, could I just make an additional point here? Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, I just want to go to a point about, about China, uh, because, uh, as I mentioned, I, it, it's hard to imagine that China could possibly approve the use of uh, 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 nuclear weapons in uh, Ukraine. And there's a, there's a larger point. There are some people that still think, well, the, 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 the Ukraine, uh, uh, the war in, in Ukraine against Ukraine is a, a sort of distraction. And, you know, the West should focus on China, which is the more sort of compelling longer term rising threat. But uh, uh, I think that's the wrong way around to look at it. So uh, and the way to, to see that is to ask the question, what would be better for the Sino-Russian relationship and potential full-blown alliance? What would, what would help that? Uh, would it be a, a Russian victory or Russian defeat? And it seems to me it's quite clear that uh, what would help the Sino-Russian relationship would be a Russian victory, or at least Russia being better off and prevailing in some way in this war. Uh, on the other hand, a Russian defeat that leaves it worse off, that, leave, that exposes the limitations of Russia's uh, power, uh, and incidentally has created already, through Western sanctions, a host of economic problems for China. That's something uh, that would weaken this uh, closer relationship between Russia, uh, China and Russia, what you've seen in recent years. So if you want to be, uh, if you want to tackle 
uh, the China challenge effectively, and you want to ensure uh, it's less likely to have an effective partner that it, uh, China has confidence in, um, then you must support Ukraine. That's the way to weaken the Sino-Russian relationship. That's quite interesting, and I'm I'm very far from being uh, an expert on China in any way. But I just, it, to me, kind of as a layman in this area, it would it's a bit it's sort of ironic because as I see it, people were saying you know the Biden administration uh, wants to you know wants to have a stable Russia and not have problems with Russia because uh, it wants to deal with China. Um, but now in this situation, I think you're saying, you know, well, that is dealing with China. So uh -huh. so things have kind of turned around, I guess, or maybe they were always that way. Um, but I will. Uh, looks like we have a question uh, from Hector Espina. Can you um, can you ask, please? Uh, sorry, Hector, if, if you want to ask a question, you, you're going to need to request uh, speaking, uh, request again to be a speaker. If not, uh, we'll give it a few moments and move on. So um, any, does anybody else want to uh, want to ask a question? Okay, I believe we have one from Samuel. Samuel Vesterby. Sorry about my pronunciation. Yes, hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so um, I have a question for uh, Nigel. Or I guess I have two questions for Nigel. One question is if you would care to elaborate um, due to his... Uh, a diplomatic background uh, or previous diplomatic background, if you would care to elaborate on the Italian, French and German uh, rumored position, uh, which came out in Politico, I think yesterday or today, with regards to uh, these three countries preferring to have a, a, a peace uh, agreement as opposed to a dragged out um potential victory for uh, Ukraine. I don't know if this was answered already, but uh, if it was, then I apologize. But if it wasn't, then I'd be uh, very curious to hear his opinion about that. And and maybe to uh, both, uh, I mean, hear his analysis of it, but also to understand uh, as a former diplomat, uh, what motivates them to say that. Um, and, um, and then my second question would be, because I just saw that uh, Nigel uh, has put... Um, filmmaker in his bio so i'd be uh, genuinely quite curious to hear what would uh, a, a great um a documentary or a film script be or a film idea be currently 
for potential filmmakers on the on the Ukraine crisis, uh, in his opinion. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not going to put a go piece, uh, but I will look for it after this uh, this podcast. Uh, it sounds interesting. Uh, and if there's actually been discussions between the three countries you mentioned, Italy, France, and Germany, well, that's worth uh, worth uh, worth exploring. Uh, I mean, each of those countries individually is has been sort of making a journey on the whole question of of clarifying its its position and therefore the objectives it seeks. As you know, Germany has under, undergone a, a, a historic and very significant shift in its foreign policy, uh, which includes uh, the provision of very significant weapons systems uh, to Ukraine. This is a coalition government, of course. It's still you know, working out its, uh, its, uh, its, uh, it, its, its common position on this. And it's not of one mind, it seems to me. Uh, France, well, we'll see now, now Macron is safely re-elected what, what position emerges in due course. But, but I, there is a sense, I've just been at the, the Leonard Mary conference here in, in Tallinn, and uh, uh, the, one of the kind of views that emerged from the, the three days of discussion here is just how far out of step uh, it seems that President Macron is uh, with respect to uh, uh, not only the, the, the larger European centre of gravity, but also um, French domestic opinion as well. And this is a really, really interesting point about uh, about public opinion across the board, that uh, where, uh, where uh, governments are more cautious about uh, setting out a, a strong uh, position or, or statement about what, the, what outcome they want to see from the war, they are lagging behind public opinion. And this is a large, it seems to me, really significant fact about Western unity is absolutely unprecedented across across uh, governments mostly, but more than that, Western opinion and uh, and even very large parts of the, the private sector as well, including companies that have been uh, have in, invested in decades. Uh, in the case of Siemens, it's just announced its withdrawal centuries uh, in uh, Russia. We've not seen that kind of private sector boycott uh, supporting uh, official sanctions before. It's it's just remarkable. We never saw this degree of unity across states, societies, and markets, even in the darkest uh, uh, periods of the Cold War. Italy, too, has also been uh, 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 more alarmed than we might have assumed, I would say, given the extent of their, uh, their earlier, uh, uh, especially commercial relationship uh, with Russia. Uh, and that's partly a consequence of the, of the war crimes we've seen, which uh, uh, I believe are at, at least as significant as the invasion itself in hardening Western opinion. And of course, we saw, we've just seen with the, the, the Eurovision uh, uh, outcome, uh, uh, one more moment, a solidifying moment of, uh, of solidarity. So I would be surprised, actually, at this point, if there were these three major continental European states were, were sort of concerting uh, to try to, to lobby for some uh, more moderate uh, outcome. Uh, we've, we have seen voices from the beginning of the war saying the most important thing is a, a ceasefire, uh, as, if, as if stopping the war uh, is a separate and more important question from uh, ending the war on the right terms, on terms that uh, serve Ukraine's and the West's 
uh, interests. It's, uh, it's, uh, it seems to be generally not a, not a helpful and not a thought-through position to say the most important thing is to stop the war. No, the most important thing is an outcome uh, that's, uh, that, that's right for Ukraine and, uh, and serves the interests and values of the West as well. Uh, so, but I will look at the political piece on filmmaking. Well, that's just a, a sort of personal hobby. But this is a this is a defining moment, uh, not only in Ukraine's history, potentially also in Russia's history as well. Um, uh, but a great uh, moral and strategic uh, moment, watershed really uh, for Europe too. So I fully expect, uh, in due course, uh, art of all kinds and the creative imagination uh, to flourish uh, as a consequence of, of, of what we are seeing. There'll be extraordinary stories, among other things, of enormous heroism and bravery and self-sacrifice. Now's not the moment to make them, of course, but in due course and at a, in, in a better time. Uh, I've no doubt there's lots to do there. Well, that's uh, just, I mean, that strikes me as a very... That's kind of an apt uh, comment, kind of bringing us back to really, sometimes it's hard to grasp the enormity of this, um, uh, what's happening. Uh, and I think you've done, you've done that quite, quite well just now. Um, and, and at the same time, given some kind of a, a picture of optimism. And, I, and I'd like to also, you know, you mentioned, and I didn't mention this before, but I do think you know, obviously, the 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 alleged war crimes, the the um, uh, atrocities uh, that have been carried out. You know, I, I do think those those clearly changed, kind of changed the the picture uh, of how people are reacting around the world. Um, you know, it's not just you know, it's uh, things are changing uh, because of the way Ukraine is defending itself. Uh, the West helping, but also uh, because of some of the things that Russia has done and is doing in Ukraine. Uh, sorry, it's hard to really explain what I'm trying to say, but um, uh, I'll just uh, open it up. I guess are there are there any other uh, questions? Uh, sorry, bear with me a minute. Okay, I uh, see no other questions now. Um, I'd like to wrap it up, but uh, Nigel, if you if you want to make any any parting comments, um, go ahead. Otherwise, I can uh, I can wrap it up. Mm. Uh, oh, just finally, just to, to reiterate the argument: the West has chosen its means, and and they are escalating. It's not yet chosen its its ends. There is movement in the a harder and firmer direction, but we haven't reached a a consensus yet. I, I hope we uh, will. And I just on on the matter of war crimes, I, I fear that uh, in the coming weeks and months, uh, what will be revealed about what has happened will be uh, even worse, um, possibly much worse than uh, what we know so far from Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanka, and other places too. Uh, and that will and should uh, have its moral effects on Western public opinion and therefore in due course on Western policy.
All right. Uh, let's, let's wrap it up there. Um, Nigel, thanks very much for joining me. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. And thanks to everyone for joining. All right. Great to have you. Great insights. Uh, now, once again, I've been speaking uh, to Nigel Gould-Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, um, and uh, a lot of experience as a diplomat, former ambassador, British ambassador to Belarus, and um, head of the economic section of the British Embassy in Moscow. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus uh, in the central newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast. You can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen uh, to podcasts. Now, I'm taking a break uh, from this next week, but I'll be back with the next edition of the week ahead in Russia on May 30th. Uh, and the next uh, edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia, will be out on June 3rd. Thanks for listening.